Welcome to How to Go to Work, the podcast that explores ways to get started. I'm author Lucy Clayton, and each week I'll be asking a guest to take us right back to the beginning. We'll be talking to people from all sorts of industries about how they began, how they chose their career or how it chose them, how they've met challenges or exploited chances, the times when they've been held back or inspired further. We know that even if you've had good support at home and in education, there are lots of things no one tells you about making the transition into the workplace. It's an almost universal rite of passage, and yet it's still shrouded in mystery. And a lot of this is simply because people can forget to talk about those early moments of their career once they reach the apex of it. So for young people, it's often hard to imagine what the journey looks like to the job of your dreams. So we're going to find out from the people who have been there, and done all that. And today I'm talking to Jude Yorson. He's the co-author and editor of the best-selling story of Stormzy's meteoric rise to fame, Rise Up, the murky story so far. An important book for many reasons, and one of them is simply that it's the first publication from the new imprint Murky Books, a part of Penguin Random House, dedicated to publishing the best new fiction, non-fiction and poetry. Curated by Stormzy, this project forms a home for a new generation of voices. Their book is evocative of a particular point in time and a particular energy, but as the title suggests, it's also about beginnings, which is why I'm so pleased to be having this conversation with Jude today. About himself, he said, The reception I have received as a writer has been overwhelming, and it points to an issue I had when I was younger. I was unfamiliar with the greatness that comes from work ethic. But even a cursory assessment of the curriculum explains why. At school, I could see how society shaped and affected my reality, but I couldn't see my reality reflected in mainstream society. Welcome, Jude. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, when I read that that quote from your Vanity Fair piece and so much of the sentiment in the book, I was really excited because the starting point of this project, How to Go to Work, um, is quite different, but the territory really resonates. And the aim of this project is to close the gap a bit between starting points and success, which is why I want to kind of kick off this conversation with the earliest question, which is what did you want to be when you grew up, when you were a kid? Oh, yeah, that's such an interesting question. What I think... What I actually wanted to be was an actor. Right. So I really appreciated films. I loved the way it could tell so many stories. Like it could imply something in the way it just captures someone's look on their face or the way it articulates a scene in, like dialogue in a scene. And yeah, just communicating the idea of being a person and coming from a particular community or culture Whenever I watched films, I felt like I could pinpoint what was going on and what was worth it in these stories. Right. And yeah, so it got to a point where I really wanted to be an actor, but I didn't have the things in place such as, you know, like the drama classes or a drama teacher that was necessarily pushing me towards it. So yeah, I just gradually ended up somewhere else. Right. So let's start a bit then with that. Mm-hmm. And kind of school and and your kind of frame of reference at that point, because, you know, a lot of what we're talking about and a lot of the conversations that we've been having have followed quite a kind of, you know, ploddy, predictable path from one thing to the next. And most people's experience uh, in education is that. But that's not the case for you, is it? No. <laughs> no. Yeah. Tell me about it. Well, I was quite a naughty student. And when I say naughty, I don't necessarily mean evil but in terms of (laughs) the way teachers could react it could make you feel evil and as a child you're so impressionable so Mm -hmm. you take on all these ideas and I basically kind of realized that I mismanaged myself but also loads of the ideas that was coming in from different teachers on like based on how I was and how they thought and assumed I would behave Mm -hmm. it kind of made me worse and I built up like a shield where I was like getting advice at times, but I was already too numb to receive it. Right. And it essentially got to a point where I felt so alienated. I wasn't really trying to do things a normal way. And I was just so But you, you were clearly smart at school. So that it wasn't, yeah. that wasn't the issue. Yeah, the work wasn't necessarily an issue. It was the engagement of it. Right. I remember 
one time, for example, this is, I think, like year six. Yeah. We're doing a play. It was Greece. Brilliant. And <laughs> <laughs> and I remember that um, I wanted, I wasn't even going to act as like the main character. I've even forgot his name I've now. I've forgotten his name, which is yeah, terrible. Where are cultural references? I don't, oh. I mean, it's, so it's John Travolta. Yeah, it's John Travolta, <laughs> but I forgot. <laughs> but yeah, I, I wasn't going for that role. I was going for like one of his friends. Yeah. And I felt like I acted really well, <laughs> like to my teacher. And so, yeah, I had to perform a scene. We had like a little script. And yeah, I felt quite confident and happy after I left that room. And then when it came to actually like choosing the actors for the roles, I didn't get any of the roles. And I didn't even get like nothing a, at all, nothing at all, not even like a supporting, a supporting character in the role. Wow! What my teacher asked me to do, me and this other girl, uh, Melissa, she asked us to carry the benches onto the stage Ooh, for the other. That definitely isn't a major yeah. role. It's a bit of a stinger, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. basically, when I was, I carried it like when it was a school play, like during school hours, and I remember it came to like a Saturday. My teacher called my house and was like, oh, yeah, well, we need you, like, for the play. We need you to, like, you know, carry the benches. The ben- essential bench carrying. Yeah, and I was like, is she serious? She's actually calling my house on a Saturday, wanting me to come in to perform the play to carry benches. <laughs> and I just kind of lost, I lost it over a little bit. But, yeah, I lost all, all respect for that teacher. Right. But I basically just, yeah, I wasn't trying to engage as much with, you know, the actual school activities and stuff like that. But that was year six, ended up leaving anyway. Do you think to a certain extent, if you're, if you struggle to make a connection with your teachers or in the environment because of whatever reason, in a sense, it's hard to kind of determine where that begins and where, or rather where that ends Mm -hmm. and then where you start to almost perform to type because their expectations of you are either so low or so kind of, they come from a place that isn't necessarily real. Yeah. But it's quite hard to then prove yourself as an alternative if they've kind of already decided. It's, yeah, super, it's super hard. And as a child, if you're not being told these certain things, then you're going to run into behaving out of character. Mm. And that's essentially what I did. I, I started to to act out. I wasn't receiving what I wanted. So I, I thought, you know, you know what, if if performing well isn't going to get me what I want, I'm just going to essentially do what I want. And it kind of like damaged my relationship a bit, like with my parents, of with course, I was going to ask peers you about at that. school yeah. and stuff like that. I essentially became the bad kid. And yeah. So when I went to secondary school now, I was much more worse. And there was like exclusions. I ended up getting excluded like over 20 times. And, but that was like, I would say it's like half and half, like my fault. And also okay. the school were quite bad at dealing with children. If I'm totally honest with myself, yeah. When a student is bad, it is alienating. And now that I'm an adult, I can see why some adults would respond that way to a child. But also, I also think in terms of the way I was treated, I wouldn't treat a child in that way, mm. especially if I'm trying to get the best results out of them. Of course. Okay, so talk to me, I guess, about uh, while this is going on at school, what Mm -hmm. your experience of kind of work is. Those uh, so, did you have a job, kind of a Saturday job, or uh, when you were a teenager? When what I actually used to do, and this is strange because it probably helped my writing career, but I just did not realize it. So my dad, right, what he used to do is sometimes he would make me write lines. Oh right, and I would have to literally write his dictation so sometimes he might be like recounting a story or something he would ask me to write it I'd write it out and he'll check over the words to see any like punctuation mistakes or errors and stuff like that and at the time I was mad like I was so (laughs) angry and I was thinking why are you taking up like (laughs) <laughs> like 40 minutes of my time on a Saturday. In this quite Dickensian activity as yeah, well. Like and, quite... <laughs> and my dad's 75, right? And I'm the youngest in my in my family. Yeah. So there's like a big, there's basically like a 50 year gap. Right. And I realised as I got older, there's a generational difference. So in terms of his punishments, he was like a bit, you know, it's old, school, old school. Very yeah. old school. And so, yeah, I, was, I would be doing that. And then, Gradually, this is even before I had like a a paying job. 
my dad used to work at like the church and it was this like Methodist fellowship. It was called like a Ghanaian Methodist fellowship. And mm-hmm. basically like people from the community were coming together, putting on events and stuff like that. And what I do with my older sister is put together their leaflets right. and write up like minutes in meetings yeah. and do all this stuff. And naturally I became an admin. <laughs> like, yeah, basically, yeah, it's yeah. super admin. It's, it's super admin. Slash and publishing, early 4am publishing. Really. Yeah, and I could touch type from when I was like 10, like close eyes, I could type yeah. a whole document and do all this kind of stuff. And then, yeah, I had all these kind of computer typing, writing skills. It was like, now it was time to like put this all together somehow. And I used to find pockets of time in between being quite badly behaved. So (laughs) when I was excluded from school, what I would do is sometimes I might like watch a documentary or I would read someone's Wikipedia. I used to love reading into people's careers and journeys and the way it was summarized. And even now I kind of tell my friends like, a goal of mine is to get a Wikipedia page. I agree. I'd love one. (laughs) Like I don't care about Instagram followers. Let's check in this time next year. I think we should do that. Yeah, honestly. We just need someone to write it. And then IMDB. (laughs) Yeah, and that. Oh, I'm on that actually. Oh, well, fuck, I'm not. (laughs) Show off. One credit. Yeah, so I used to love like looking at Wikipedias, looking at people's journeys and stories. And I just felt there's things that you can do and, reading into people's stories, there's always moments of change. Yeah. And it's like, I wasn't necessarily seeing that in myself. So I was quite angry and annoyed. And what kind of built me towards like gearing towards like writing in this is when people told me I couldn't do something at that point, I would try to do it. Like yeah. out of like, like a kind of negation, if you know what I mean. You've written a, about that and I, I'll quote you, even though that's a bit weird because <laughs> you're sitting in front of me. But you said in a twisted way, being told I would fail was an inspiration. Yeah. And it sounds to me like hearing you talk about, you know, there are loads of things you can do when you're excluded. Your time yeah. is kind of your own. So, much so it's actually heartbreaking to think of you kind of almost giving yourself an apprenticeship yeah. in a bunch of other stuff that maybe you didn't know what it was going to turn into yet. But exactly. there's such a connection between, you know, what you do now mm-hmm. and all the things you've just described. Yeah, It's just kind of so depressing that a school environment can't always A, identify that and mm-hmm. B, motivate it into something in exactly. that structure. I think that's yeah. really and sad. When it when it's, it's like that, there's so many other factors around like school and the normal route, as you said, like not everyone's journeys are so straightforward. And when you're not on that straightforward path, you can literally be like, so dejected about yourself. And I would even describe it like then during the moments I was permanently excluded from school, I was like very depressed. I just didn't articulate in that way until probably like last three, four years. But when I look back at that moment in time in my life, definitely like I basically became a social outcast and was cast away from my friends only only like two three of my friends from school actually spoke to me and is that because there was you were kind of tainted with the you know because you've been excluded and therefore you're kind of you or it's because their parents are saying don't hang out with him (laughs) yeah I think it was yeah it was it was a bit of both. Like some people saw it as, oh, he's a bit too far gone. Right. We don't okay. know like how he's behaving. What is he doing? Then yeah, it, there's no point inviting him. And yeah, the parents, obviously they would be worried. And at that point in time within London, we had such a like crazy spread of like knife crime and issues that are going on like on, on the streets. And it was very scary at that mm. time for like, people and individuals and I even remember like when I started my exclusion center the literally the talk at break at break time was about people that have been stabbed people that have been shot people that have been like killed and yeah so being in that kind of environment it's like you've been casted out but you have a scope on the very real things that are happening yeah and it was a bit constant because you're surrounded by like the worst grouped up people essentially yeah, it's like you've been take you've been sort of forced out of one environment and put into mm-hmm. one which is definitely not going to give you a bunch of references that are going to help turn this around yeah 
But in a strange way, it now that did. I look at it, look at it, it actually did. <laughs> okay. So, Which is mad, but it's life. And do you think that's because you saw that and thought, no, I, this, I don't want this? It, yeah, it was that. And also I was looking at it like everyone's going through something that they shouldn't really have to be going through. But in turn, now we've kind of made it to this age. Like, yeah, lo- loads of people that were in my exclusion centre, I-, I look at them, they're super mature. Mm. There's people like um, with kids, kids that now they'll take them to places like, oh, theatre yeah. and have them see in you know, a totally different lifestyle to what they had growing up. There's people that have invested in themselves and yeah, just got to like a really happy stage. And you wouldn't think that if you were to look at them in the face when they were around like 14 years old. So I look at people's transitions and their ability to change and compare it to back then. And I I just feel like I've seen people change in incredible ways. So I can't really tell myself that I can't change. No. Okay. So tell me then about your first kind of experience of being paid. So not working for your dad, not doing what your dad tells you, although I do love that. And he's (laughs) suddenly become a bit of a hero of mine, but um, your first kind of paid gig. Can I tell you a short story before? <laughs> yes, please. So imagine, like, I used to go to school and stuff like in Bromley. That's like South East London, but on the outskirts, getting towards Orpington. And there's like this place called The Glades. It's like um, a shopping centre and there's a McDonald's inside it. So I applied, went to like my initial interview there, yeah. was actually like getting to learn the ropes and stuff. And then... Because of the way I was set up then, yeah. I saw so many people around and I just, I felt like I didn't want the job. So luckily they didn't call me back the next day, right. but I could have called up and I definitely got the job. But I didn't because I didn't want everyone to come and see me. I felt like embarrassed. I see, and okay. the reason why I felt embarrassed, not because it was McDonald's, because it was, it was money. Yeah. But it's like, I came from a situation where I just left like exclusion centre I'm seeing people that they're doing, they're 16, they're doing like internships, they're working at places like JD, Foot Locker. And Mm -hmm. it was a cool like kind of thing to do. You can get discounts and look nice. (laughs) That's enough. Yeah. yeah, But it was kind of the stigma. So you didn't want that to be a direct comparison. It looked, so if you did that, it felt like you were confirming a path that you didn't want to be on. Exactly. And I don't appreciate the mentality that I had then, but, I'm very conscious about it. I think it's completely possible to look back on decisions that you made when you were that age, though, and mm-hmm. and not and kind of cringe a little bit about your perspective, yeah. but also totally understand yeah. why you did it. Hundred percent. In retrospect, even if you probably would have done it, or you might advise your younger self differently, mm-hmm. I think you can still really understand what took you. Yeah, to that exactly. Place. And it was literally everyone else. I was peer pressured yeah. into not doing that. Okay, so what did you do instead? What I'd done instead was I ended up applying for jobs and I thought, hang on, um, football. I like football. Let me apply for some jobs here. And there was this company, um, Delaware North Companies. They're like like stadium staff. Yeah. And they would work on match days at like Wembley and Emirates. It was hell. (laughs) It was like, I live in South London, innit? I live in Crystal Palace. So for me to go all the way to Wembley... To work for like six hours, to travel for like an right. hour plus there and back. Guess how much I was making? I don't know. Don't tell like, me. I made like twenty six pounds on a shift. Wow! And that was a like after day. tax. Yeah, and it was like they basically reasoned that oh, the hour that you're doing the stuff where you're getting ready and you're being assigned staff staff roles, you're not being paid for that hour. I you're not hate being that. paid for the hour that they're calculating the money. You're not being paid for right. the hour. That's what, like, obviously it's like a lunch break and stuff, but you take away those three hours from the other, like three, four hours you're supposed to have worked. Yeah. Plus the like, travel, plus the, yeah. Yeah. And then you get like, what, six pounds, 50 something for an actual hour's work. You times that by four, you get around 26, 27 pounds. I, my, one of my first jobs was in Next, in yeah. the regional branch of Next, and I <laughs> um, hated it. But they didn't pay you for the bit where the doors are shut, mm-hmm. and then you got to tidy up the store for what? the next day. So that includes vacuuming. 
looking, which obviously what? I wasn't very good at. <laughs> and the sorting out, you're making sure that all it's like size eight, size 10, size 12, you know, on each rail, mm-hmm. you weren't paid for that. Now that made no sense to me. So the, the doors would shut That's and crazy. the rage would start inside me. Yeah. And I would literally be like, you've never seen anyone vacuum with such anger as I used to vacuum yeah. that store. <laughs> because I was like, you're not being paid for the vacuum <laughs> This that is, is so, so demeaning. I don't it's know what this. Your house. Not my house. <laughs> so I, I totally understand yeah. how frustrating that it's, is. It's so frustrating. It's hard to get up in the morning if you're looking at twenty six quid. Oh, and when you're thinking about like the moment in time that you applied for it, is loads of exploitation. And that's the thing about my coworkers when I was working at, at stadium stuff is there's so many people that around my age. There were so many like like elder like foreign workers as well and it was like we just weren't being (laughs) we weren't being accommodated properly we hardly got lunch sometimes I would go without lunch and yeah it was just like terrible working conditions like there would be one manager that would come and oversee what's going on in between us getting showered at by like Arsenal fans because they were a bit they still are crap but (laughs) You know what I mean? And it was just like getting onto us and it was just a bad work environment. And I basically like quit after like five, six shifts. Right. And I was just like, yeah. This is not the thing. This is not the thing. And because where I came from and at that time with the GCSEs, with the schools and stuff, it was very necessary in a CV. Now when people look at my CV, they don't care that <laughs> I went to Kingswood PRU. Like I would put Kingswood school. But <laughs> Yeah. I don't think you should. <laughs> um, I guess at that point in your life, you also needed something that was a bridge between mm-hmm. a not glorious education yeah. and the next, the, what, next how you step. form your adult life, I guess. So there yeah. must have been quite a lot of pressure on you at that point. There was a lot. Like, I even remember I was 16. I, I got my GCSE results, went home. And my family were basically saying, like, oh, like, congratulations. Because I did, like, actually achieve, like, nine GCSEs at the at a pupil referral unit. And a little bit of a boast. But at the centre, that was the most GCSEs ever achieved in, in, in that centre at that point. Because there wasn't that many options for the children and stuff. But it was like, I was just looking at my grades over and over again, mm-hmm. thinking, wow, really... If I was in school, I could have had like five more GCSEs. Right. So did that feel like an achievement for you? I mean, clearly it's not a boast. It's an achievement in a really difficult set of circumstances. I actually cried when I saw my results. Yeah, I was so like... Oh, don't, because you'll make me cry. And then all my makeup will go. Don't do that. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I actually (laughs) cried. Like I was just feeling like crap because I knew. And at that point, I still had the mentality of, oh, there's this thing that I've done and then there's mainstream school. Yeah. And all the mainstream school guys had like done their work enough to possibly get into six forms. I wasn't going to six form. I was going to college. Yeah. And colleges, especially the colleges that were accessible to me around the area, not to make them seem darker than they were, but there were, yeah, there was loads of gangs. Yeah. There was loads of, Stuff that was I was kind of already surrounded by in centre. Yeah. So going to that situation, like luckily it worked out. I spent like three years um, doing courses to get into university. But it was like, I felt so low that I couldn't go the normal route. And college for me was basically taking a step back. Yeah. Being around, because in college there's like a few thousand people. And one thing that kind of helped me in that setting was I was drowned out by the noise. Right. In centre, there was only about 25 students and only about 15 might come in or even 12 some days. You know what I mean? So yeah. it was a bit overwhelming, but I felt... Well, and quite the, intense. That means yeah. that your reference points are all mm-hmm. from are all similar. Yeah. And that's, that's quite hard to... It's be the one who's like, actually, I think I'm thinking about a whole series yeah. of different references. And it's it's crazy because I, I remember like <laughs> the transition was was weird. Like I would be in maths in exclusion centre where someone would literally be assaulting a teacher. And the teacher would be so kind 
because they wouldn't want that student to get like permanently expelled from right, an exclusion center. They wouldn't tell the like head teacher and stuff. They're just like, yeah, like it's just banter or something like that and pass it off. And so I'll be looking at that like, wow, like we're really, I'm really yeah. kind of like at rock bottom of and education. And there's no rules There's no anymore. rules. And then wow. I went to college and then it was like, oh, there's rules again. Now I can be like silent. So that's kind of re- really reassuring. Yeah, it was I told reassuring. you I love a rule. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but so college then ended up being a really good thing. Yeah, college, I met like, a few of the best friends that I have now. And it basically allowed me to have fun and interact with people again. Um, When I was in Exclusion Centre, I did like take up boxing. I kind of learned how to, yeah, I learned how to box, carried that throughout college and had the same kind of boxing teachers who were teaching the college and the Exclusion Centre. So it's a bit of a plus for me. And I even remember I had a friend in the centre who one time I basically said that, oh, I want to do A-levels. I want to go to university. And she was like, you can't do that. Like, we're we're in centre. And they were actually laughing. And I was wow. like, wow. And like that Vanity Fair quote, I've, yeah. I really remember that like, vividly in my head. It was like, you know what? I'm going to show you I can do it. And I kind of like forced myself to go through the A-levels, yeah. get to university just so I could say, yeah, I've been to university like my brother and sister did because mm. they weren't bad. I was the only bad one in my family. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> I really wanted to go. why your dad was so cross. <laughs> yeah. We had like a very weird relationship, but now there's a level of respect. And even through conversations like this, like about writing the lines and stuff, I'm starting to realise the things that he done that yeah. kind of built me to this. Totally. So not only did you do A-levels yeah. and with a certain element of defiance, <laughs> uh, but university too. Yeah. And did that feel, did that kind of, it's, I don't know, university is a strange you know, um, kind of moment. is like a long jump. Yeah. yeah. It's a long jump. How was into, that? It was, it was incredible, but also very like revealing in so many different ways. And in college, I had like less issues than I, with like authority than I did in university, which was kind of strange, but it was like, you're coming from a bit of a sheltered community and I come from Southeast London, Crystal Palace. And it was very like segregated when I was growing up in my teenage years in terms of like, I wouldn't just say gang violence, but also just like areas and like postcodes. We used to have like postcode wars, for example. So For instance, I couldn't go like three roads up and just be loitering about. I would get into issues with other other people. And I wasn't really that kind of person to be getting into those issues. So when I went to university, it was like I was jumping over areas that I never even used to even go through. Right. Because it was like there's no point. Even the geography of it is like completely different. Exactly. Is that freeing or is that frightening? It's a bit of both if you don't have the perspective on it. Because I remember in first year of university, I went to Roehampton and studied philosophy. And even the reason why I studied philosophy is because my dad was telling me to study like um, economics or law. And I was like, I'm not doing these subjects. (laughs) because parents just want you to get a job. Yeah. And I was like, no, I'm not doing these subjects. I am going to do philosophy to essentially help me figure out what I wanted to do. And I kind of wanted to do something in terms of like writing films or acting, but I still wasn't concrete. There was zero path. So went to university and yeah, like you said, it was freeing, frightening a bit because I realised how sheltered and shut off I was. And there I met much more of a spread of like cultures, different communities, people from different like countries even. And Yeah, but the only kind of issues I ran into at that point was something to do with my own behaviour and my own ways of articulating stuff. And yeah, just like generally perceptions that I'd had. So Mm. there was loads of like unlearning that I needed to do, maturing. And yeah, I gradually done that over the the course. And first year of university was when I was, um, we're writing these things called like reaction papers, where it's like, Every week, I would write like a short essay mm-hmm. about the topic and the content. And I was thinking, these are really good ideas, but 
is still a bit far from me. Right. Like, how can I write this and pitch this to people back home? People, I see, okay. Like, people like me who won't be able to digest this content because it's written by, you know, like, can't. Yeah. <laughs> or some, someone that they won't read because intellectual property is distant. It's, it's not accessible yeah. to them. So I thought, okay, let me start doing that. And I started to recall the fact that I used to write when I was excluded from school and stuff. I used to write like short stories on forums. I used to read other people's short stories. I used to um, write role plays and even create like short stories on PowerPoint Mm -hmm. when I was even a bit younger. And so, yeah, I started to think again, like I need to articulate these stories and ideas somehow. And ended up just sharing like my articles and stuff that I wrote through philosophy online, started to build up like a little bit of a conversation. I created a website called the house of horrors. And that was literally just my collection point for these articles and these things. And yeah. So then it got to a point when, when I was creating the website, even I even said to myself, okay, what am I going to do now? Because at the end of this philosophy course, I'm not going to be a philosopher. Right. <laughs> I'm not All gonna... of those mega jobs in philosophy. <laughs> Just like sitting in a bar, smoking a cigar and I talking mean, about life. It sounds life. nice. Move to Paris. Like... <laughs> it sounds nice, but it doesn't exist. <laughs> it's nice work if you can get it. I yeah. Guess. So I thought, okay, like I would love to write and I'd love to write for a living. And then the question was how? Mm. And started to network with a few people. There was this one girl... Um, her name was Shanaina. She helped me put together the website and I started to share articles. And what would happen is people would retweet it and share it and it would get to like 100, 200 retweets. And I was thinking, wow, these are just like yeah. articles on essentially nothingness. Yeah. But <laughs> people are engaging. <laughs> Actually and, nothingness. <laughs> and yeah, and they're talking. And then at that point, this is like, I'd say about five, six, almost six years ago, that's yeah. when I started to like follow Stormzy on Twitter. And I was like sharing his freestyles and stuff like that. And he would also share my articles. And I was thinking, wow, like, okay, so even these type of people, like he's obviously a rapper in an entirely different different lane, but I could see he was different from early. Yeah, He's helping share my content and I found it really cool. I think university can be a really alienating time for a lot of people, particularly if you study a subject like philosophy or yeah. English, where let's be honest, you've got like f- between four and eight hours of contact time a week. Yeah. Like it's, it's lonely. Crazy. And people don't talk about this, but you know, you're like just kind of kicking about a lot of the time in your mm-hmm. own head. And that's quite dangerous, it's I think, so for a lot dangerous. of people. A lot of the people that I've mentored have really struggled with just the n- amount of time that isn't occupied and you're mm-hmm. just in your own head for like hours and hours and hours a week. And of course you've got work to do and you've got loads of reading, Mm -hmm. but actually your point about feeling really like what you were producing for university, those essays of being really distant from real life Mm -hmm. is I think true. I think everyone experiences that when they're doing a subject like that. I don't understand it. I don't understand why. So I love that you took that challenge and then reframed it and then Mm. effectively popularized what you were learning through your writing yeah because actually what that does is it reconnects your study with the real world yeah uh in a way that then loads of good shit happens but even if it didn't even if you were still kind of doing it in a quite a kind of quiet way closed off and it would still feel like it had a had a a kind of a voice outside of the classroom that's exactly what i was aiming for i was aiming for to bring it to the real world because I remember this one discussion that we had in morality and we always used to have these kind of, now that I look at it, it was probably a bit of pretentious, but yeah. my lecturer would walk around with his hands in his pockets, just striding around, just looking at our faces and be like something, he would say something like slavery, is it right or wrong? And I'll just be sitting there like, Jesus <laughs> Christ. And let's start right yeah. back at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Like, and it was awkward, but it forced those conversations out of us, which I do kind of respect. But yeah, I remember this, there was this one point in moral philosophy, which really rubbed me the wrong way. And we're just basically talking about how 
philosophy is not really meant to impact society or real life. It's essentially just intellectual property. Right. Where people at a certain level in terms of their class are dancing around these ideas. And we were discussing what philosopher really took philosophy and made it impact Mm -hmm. real life. And even though he might not have claimed it, it was probably Marx Mm, because people adopted his ideologies and ran with it into reality and it's affected how we live. And I was just, I didn't, I didn't like that at all because I'm reading about things to do with epistemology, like Mm. the truth behind ideas, things to do with ancient philosophy, like how things are articulated to do with existence, to do with absolutely everything that is existential to a point that nothing else even matters. And if you have a conversation from that point, then everything from like our annoyances to food, it could be discussed and reasoned. I mean, it's as day-to-day as it gets, Exactly, it's day-to-day as it gets. And so I was looking at all these ideas that I had and I was thinking, this stuff should be used to help people on a daily basis instead of those, you know, inaccessible like Athens, Shibboleth, whatever it's called, (laughs) like papers and stuff. It should be there for someone to click and engage and especially if it can help them understand something. Yeah. So yeah, I came with that article of writing basically until university finished and I didn't change my mind on philosophy until... I started my master's degree. Right. And yeah, that's a whole other journey. <laughs> okay, so talk to me then. But one of the things that we talk about in the book is that the traditional path isn't the only path. Yeah. And I think particularly, you know, you and I are sitting here having this conversation at Penguin Random House, sort of, <laughs> you know, a kind of legend, legendary name <laughs> in publishing. Yeah. I think it's really interesting to talk about how you ended up in this room because Mm -hmm. it definitely isn't the traditional room. And that's why I love the story. Yeah. This is about two, almost three years ago now. And as I said earlier, I like me and Storms, you're like following each other, sharing each other's content every now and then. He must have just sent me a message on Twitter and said, yo, like he's setting something up, which was then murky books. We didn't quite know it then. But he's setting something up and he would love to have me involved. And I was just like, yeah, cool, I'm on it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm up for it, whatever Like it is. Because I basically saw what he was doing in terms of his career. And I wholeheartedly just respect it. Because where I see him, I just wanted to see people like him and other people in our area succeed. Because I know what they've essentially gone through as well. And... So yeah, he sent me that message and said, we should work together on something. Give me the word. And I was like, yeah, I'll give you my word. I'm on it. A couple of years later, this is like last year, January, he sent me another message and said, my brand manager, Akua, um, would want your details to get into contact with her. So I sent a few examples of my work and stuff like that to look professional. <laughs> Ended up going to um, Penguin office in Vauxhall. So yeah, we started to put the idea together for Rise Up. And with Rise Up, it was generally to articulate and capture the journey until now. So I conducted the interviews with everyone who's a part of the murky teams. And literally every discussion was so empowering. And I learned so much and I was so glad that actually felt them as people I could see and understand why their hard work had allowed them to reach this point and it was just fascinating for me um, because of the journey that I had taken to like reach this point and realize as I'm going through the process that my perspective also helps pinpoint so many other things like for instance I had very interesting discussions with Stormzy regarding like our racial identity in our community and the culture and how like the mainstream kind of interacts and reacts to it. And one thing that I asked him was about his mental processes. Like I always imagine what is it like as like a young black man to wake up every day and then see someone to see 
hundreds of people like literally sending you messages all the time hundreds yeah. thousands what does that how does that work in your in terms of your mental process and he was like people aren't supposed to experience that like yeah. a normal human being shouldn't go through these things so in terms of being very conscious of, of it he kind of has to react from that way but also being totally genuine within himself at all times yeah and that's that must be it's as in, with each passing day that must get harder and harder yeah it must get harder and harder and it was intense and when we just fleshed out the entire story i just felt like i had to do right and articulate their story for them up until this point and to also show them that they can also learn from their own journeys yeah and i think that as a reader of the book what it does i think it does a number of extraordinary things and certainly the i mean you are the guardian of multiple narratives in this yeah. in the this writing process but those voices i think come across really distinctly and clearly mm-hmm. as individuals which is an amazing thing it's almost like as a reader you're eavesdropping on this process as yeah. it's unfurling and that feels really exciting and i think you've done an amazing job in honoring Thank all you. of those voices so i i loved that aspect just as a in the same way that you might enjoy it in a novel it does that mm-hmm. but from a kind of education point of view and I would urge kind of all of our listeners to read the book particularly if you're as you should be if you're listening to this starting out in work because the the section at the beginning that you call preparation Mm -hmm. particularly is so good at setting up this idea that these people are coming from disparate places or you know experiences starting out in different all sorts of different jobs you know and there's crossover of course there is but the main crossover as a reader that I couldn't help but kind of feel really powerfully was there's this sort of there's a work ethic Mm -hmm. there's like a sense of graft yeah there's a kind of grace to everyone that is completely unifying Mm -hmm. even before it's all under the murky banner and everyone's working together so it's almost I think that's really obvious from the outset and there's those qualities that everyone shares Mm -hmm. that is so evident when you're reading about how that came together and all those things are so essential it doesn't matter if you're doing your Saturday job in Mm -hmm. a supermarket like if you can exhibit those qualities then Mm -hmm. then the point is you will have them so much stronger by the time you're you're doing whatever your equivalent is yeah. is in terms of collaborating and building something massive and getting that excellence a- aspect like, totally the one i really love these two words that that Stormzy gave me like undeniable excellence yeah well two phrases i should say undeniable excellence and the other would be foresight because yeah. i used to say vision a lot like vision vision but he says foresight because once you see it you're able to like actually go and achieve it. it's just about doing those steps in between so he was having the foresight to accomplish a lot of the things that they that would they were doing yeah and it impressed me just like because i'm very particular about words yeah. i really i talk and work from a stream of consciousness loads of the time however I also can see why words serve you in a different way. Mm. So just by like changing my tone on a few things, like I've managed to empower myself. Yeah. And even that example, you know, vision sounds like it requires some kind of supernatural, you know, like I've got this almost like God given, like in it actually... It's a lot more hard work than that. It's a kind of like assess the landscape, you know, predict Mm -hmm. the trend. Like uh, that's a lot more kind of workmanlike. But I think that distinction is really important. That's really interesting. And this one other one that I really loved as well was Akua. She she was talking about red tape and how there's some things that people and companies, for example, company a company might tell you that, oh, they can't do that because of this budget and X, Y, Z. That's the reason why they're not going ahead with it. But when you're working in a team of like, like Murky itself, like nothing is undeniable that they can't do. Yeah. If they put their minds to it, obviously I'm not talking about like fly to the moon, <laughs> but if I said that to although, a crew, although, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But she basically <laughs> said like, you can go beyond that red tape but it's literally about actually 
seeing the process and being able to just essentially fulfill it. Yeah, and I think also, and a lot of the the story being told, especially at the beginning of the book, although, as I said in the introduction, it is all about beginnings because obviously mm-hmm. this is not a story that's over, yeah. <laughs> thankfully, mm-hmm. um, which in itself is exciting. But it reminds me a lot of the kind of startup cultures that I'm familiar with. Yeah. Uh, this sense that the thing is you can do stuff differently if you are all really talented and mm-hmm. you all trust each other. Like that basically means like a lot of red tape disappears if you yeah. have that working environment. Exactly. Like a lot of that is just about protection ism for yeah. you know like frankly old tired models like it's not <laughs> i don't know that it's that kind of i think we yeah, can get rid of a lot them, of that those models like um i feel like i feel like the type of work that i'm doing like i like kind of paradigm shifts i like yeah. changing the way things work so yeah even with the like a lot of the projects that i want to do now i want to do groundbreaking things that haven't necessarily been done before. Yeah, and genre-defying kind mm-hmm. of, I think all of that is completely available in a way that it's maybe it possible, wasn't so a while not? ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in our book, we talk about how it's sometimes a good idea to kind of talk about the we rather than mm-hmm. I, everything. And particularly yeah. in creative cultures, sometimes that can get a bit tricky. But again, mm-hmm. what I love in the way you've written the book is that it is a complete demonstration of we from like... Yeah. That, and, and that's really interesting in a scenario where you've got, you know, the most charismatic and talented guy up front. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is like in your book, it's obviously about the story of, you know, empire building to a certain extent and also yeah. at star rising, I guess. But I love that all the stories are kind of given equal weight. There is. Yeah. And that for me is a really important, again, quite an important lesson about what it's like when you're actually building something, whether yeah. that's a company or whether it's, uh, you know, your own career is that actually you, the idea that everyone has a kind of equal role to play, even mm-hmm. if someone is the obvious front man yeah how did that feel as a process of writing that was that really deliberate i always kind of see this thing so i see things in terms of like a domino effect which is really weird but i just think it's down to the way things are hosted so for example it might sound very weird for for me to say but if like lethal b didn't release like power in like 2000 and i think it's 2004 but if you didn't release that then yeah. I wouldn't be here today, yeah. which is is very weird to say, but <laughs> this is all the domino effect of totally. Uh, but also understanding happened. like this, your place in a broader creative exactly. culture as well, yeah. which and I think again is important and it's great. So important. I just keep yeah, I keep saying graceful, which is a bit <laughs> makes you sound like a ballet dancer. But you know what I mean? Like it is. It's about saying that I'm not a lone narrative voice. Mm-hmm. This is part of the thing, and I think that's really yeah, yeah. Again, feels genre defying. So, so what I tried to do with the introductions was. I tried to step in between, especially with the main like first introduction. I tried to point at like the entire scene and what kind of built this idea of like like a black British consciousness and a black British creativity. And even though not everyone in the in the book is like black and British, mm. in terms of the content, that's where it's coming from. And I've always said that there's like a lineage of respect in terms of our creativity that we're not given. And if you do uphold these things, you start to recognise what they served. Mm -hmm. And then that's when you can make smarter conscious decisions and say, oh, this helped this person. So this can also help this person. Who do you think in all this, in what has been a really kind of crazy journey Mm -hmm. so far, who do you think has been the biggest influence on you? It's cliche answer, but with my mum, for example, like her story's always fascinated me and I've always thought about her in a way where I've extended her into other people. So sometimes I'd see like elderly, like black women, and I know that they might have had a similar path to my mum in terms of like coming over to the country and investing in like a family and children and so many experiences. So when she moved to this country, she was like a cleaner at a theatre. She even told me this one time she was on the way to work and she got hit by a car, but she literally couldn't afford to go to hospital. Oh my so God. she had to just get up and go to work. And like now she's a social worker and that's like a 30 to 40 year 
story of progress. Right. And she was orphaned by the age of eight. Like she lost her mum when she was like four and her dad and one of her older brothers when she was eight. She lived with her grandma and basically grew up like, yeah, in a kind of a weird situation. So with her, she's constantly, she's always got like a beam and smile on her face. <laughs> Even like, oh, like, yeah, God bless them. But we lost like two aunties, like two of her sisters earlier, well, late at the end of last year. And that was like during the rollout of the book and stuff right. and it was, yeah, it was very difficult, but I used to just see the way she carried herself and I still do. And I just think she epitomizes some kind of happiness that I would love to have one day, but yeah. I'm also trying to achieve that and get to that stage where I can, yeah, live in respect of just life like her. But yeah, that's... She sounds incredibly strong. She's incredibly strong, yeah. So in terms of strength and like an emotional perspective, like my mum is an inspiration. And in terms of creativity, I would say, I've said like black Britishness are not a lot because like I said, if power didn't happen, if So Solid Crew didn't happen, if directly, if Stormzy hasn't, didn't ask me to do this thing, like I wouldn't be here. And the community is quite, self-serving it just hasn't been articulated and pitched in that way so everything inspires me and I've always kind of said to myself I want it to be like a writer that's as popular as a rapper <laughs> in a weird way because I feel like the content that I could create I would I would love it for children to be so excited and engaged with it because if the ideas are good I could literally teach them about things that they could go through teach them about things that we can go through and also unearth underrepresented things in the past, like themes and stories and mm. stuff like that. So yeah, that's what inspires me. And as a writer working now, do you feel that that black British story is being given? I mean, things like your book obviously mm -hmm. help and I can't help thinking about, you know, Glastonbury and that yeah. kind of outpouring of what felt like oh, a national crazy. outpouring of love. That's uh, crazy. And not even to take like any, anything <laughs> from that, but I'm, I was looking at that like, wow. Yeah. I wrote that guy's book. Yeah, exactly. So, so do you feel kind of writing into that space right. now that it, that that is changing and that, mm. and obviously projects like Murky Books are really yeah. important. And does that feel even in a small way like progress? I've, I think it, it definitely, it definitely does. But there's so many sections of society where there's like an untold story for example, one thing I was going to say about like my my master's degree. Yeah. Like I studied cultural studies and I also done a few modules of African and Asian diaspora. So basically with those subjects, it basically taught me about the experiences and the things that people went through like in the 60s, 50s, 40s even like yeah. All of that which is underrepresented. None of which is taught in it's not, school. It's not taught in mainstream schools. And I'm here thinking, well, there's some na some nature of this work which needs to be brought to fruition. Mm. But also it's a way of like articulating it and pitching it. Like there's so many different mediums now. And I remember there was this one TV show. I think it was about the, like the Black Panther UK party, I forgot what it's even called, mm. but there was loads of like complaints about it because of the way it was articulated. And I was there like kind of considering the actual history of it. Right. And yeah, so in terms of like mediums for this information to come out through, we've got so many different angles now. We've got books, we've got podcasts, obviously got documentaries. TV shows, but as you said, it needs to be implemented into a and kind it needs of mainstream to be woven into collective consciousness. Co yeah. Okay. So, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were younger? I think is the sentiments that I basically put forward earlier about the ability to change, because some people are literally ingrained in their way and in what they do. All they know is this. And 
your life can change. It's literally about time and investment spaces and headspace. And loads of people don't have the headspace. Like when I was younger, I had zero headspace. It was full up of other people's ideas and opinions. And once I started to declutter it and basically unlearn the ideas and the social pressures, I got to a certain point where I just started to acknowledge the ability for change. So anything that I'm into now, I'm confident in being able to change it within a year's time, within six months, within three weeks. Like if I was to channel it, channel myself and fragments of my time into that, then I would build something. And one thing I always respect about my own writing journey is the way I kind of even built this is with those philosophy articles at first, I might be busy with something like I might have work to do and that's done, but I might have like several hours in the night to, to do it. I would probably give myself like two hours to write something. If I was to write every day for like two hours, every day for like several months, I've definitely really better gotten better at the skill. So yeah. from articles to essays to poetry like I've got I even learned a party trick through this kind of system I gave myself I can write poems like in like five minutes even though I don't perform them I could like right. put it together so I'd write like random poetry now film reviews I love doing like yeah. with that same technique I feel pretty confident in writing film reviews and articles as well like I built it over time and changed my confidence with, with being able to do these things. And now the confidence that I'm working on is novel writing. And a lot of that is just about craft, isn't it? It's about exactly. spending time on your craft. craft and yeah. I kind of always think that however frustrating, and it usually is creatively, but however frustrating that feels in the moment, it all contributes, like nothing is wasted mm -hmm. in those hours. Nothing at all. And especially if your headset, your head is literally switched on towards it. Right. If you're thinking about something, it is kind of work. And that's another thing I've realised, like, as a freelancer now, like, there literally might be some days, like, me and my friends just say, oh, we're bumming out today. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, that day that I'm bumming out, I might have spent, like, two hours of my mental thoughts yeah. going on this one project. And it's I've, so hard to give that value though, isn't it? Because yeah. you definitely are slacking off, but you're, <laughs> but you're not because your brain is, your I really struggle active, with it. Like, I really struggle with it. So in the book, we talk about resilience a lot. And mm -hmm. there's a word that is battered at young people all the time. Mm -hmm. Like, you got to build your resilience. And it's like, actually, mm -hmm. first of all, you can't wake up one morning and decide, oh, today I'm going to work on my resilience. Like, yeah. obviously that's bollocks. Totally it's completely pointless. Like, and I think for a lot of the time, it's a word that's being really used, just like authenticity is being used all the time. And it's like, well, okay, how do you, how, what, what advice would you give someone who's being told that they need to build their resilience? Because like, I think resilience is something you learn, not mm -hmm. something you either have or you don't have. And what you've experienced in your life is mm. ha has contributed to what... Now, everything you say mm -hmm. sounds super resilient. Like, you understand mm -hmm. that if an experience knocks you back, that's not the end of the experience. Like, yeah. But where do you? Th how do you think you can build on that? I think... Sometimes you have to go through the situation to actually have hands-on experience because even right now I'm, I was editing, I'm editing a BBC book. It's called BBC um, Use Words First. It's for Words First Talent Development Scheme. And yeah, it's a really interesting project. And when I've been putting this book together, like some, like in terms of deadlines, it's been stretched yeah. and stuff like that. I've basically had to be professional in the middle and resilient to some people, but it was triggering because I've never been, I've never been kind of just simply in an editor position where I'm waiting on someone's content. Yeah. I'm normally the person of that course. writes the content <laughs> yeah. and, give, and gives it. So I had to build some kind of resilience there. And it was like, I've done much harder things, but this is really testing my patience and like my, my head like that was the day I bummed out that's <laughs> interesting because I was just like yeah. sitting there like thinking I want to dedicate my mental space and energy towards my own book and other projects yeah and I want to be assured of my time but I'm waiting on someone else and I've got to build my resilience and 
instead of me like just taking a deep breath, chilling and working on something else or just giving that day a free day and, and accepting the fact that my work is going to be delivered late. Yeah. I let myself get riled up yeah. for, the, for the whole day. And then afterwards, when the work came through, I was like, you know, it actually wasn't that bad. Why was I stressing so much? It's very frustrating that I've been through worse things, yeah. but I'm allowing this one thing to stress me. And I basically would do... I always call people like an equation. You're basically an equation of, of so many different factors. And my equation that day was annoyance. Yeah. I, I didn't eat properly that day. I wasn't doing anything relaxing. I didn't sleep properly. Didn't produce so anything. I didn't produce anything. So all of that was like my equation. And that's yeah. the reason why I felt that way in the moment. But taking a step back, like I could choose what I really want to add to myself to decide how I'm going to react to this. So yeah, I don't try to be resilient for the sake of being resilient. I try to work out why do I have to be numb to this situation? Yeah. What's the best like result I can get out of it? But also I think an important point there is don't feel like, okay, well I've exhibited resilience on a previous occasion and a mm-hmm. previous set of circumstances, which means yeah. that I'm necessarily going to be resilient to all of the things that now happen to me in my exactly. life. Because until you've done it once, yeah, you probably won't know. have that reaction again. <laughs> You'll be yeah. able, because you'll recognise it and it won't trigger all this like weird, mm-hmm. you know, negative behaviour. Yeah. Like, I don't get how my agent could be so chilled sometimes. <laughs> like, <laughs> she's just, they're like, I, would, I might send her something like, like, oh, I couldn't, I actually couldn't do this because this happened. And then she'll be like, oh, it's okay. But just make sure like next time you just send me, a, I'll be like, oh, shit. Yeah. I thought you were going to get... You were get, freaking out. Yeah, I thought but you were going to freak but out. But that's probably because you're just... I don't know, now I'm just being a shit psychologist, but you're probably, <laughs> you're probably just imagining... A lot of that will be just that you are used to being in an environment where you have to produce work mm-hmm. and your teachers are telling you that it's not good enough. or you're, yes, So you're in, anticipating exactly. that she's going to treat you like yeah. you have been treated in the past, whereas exactly. this is a completely different relationship. You know, one thing that's even mad for me, like, say if you're like, Jude... I would get shook, you know. I'm like, I'm like, what? Right, but you're feeling the feelings that don't belong to this situation, but belong to an old one, of course. It's crazy. Like at home, I hate it. Like I would hear the phone go off. Yeah. And then my mum might be like, Jude. And I'm like, shit. Something bad. (laughs) Even at at 26, (laughs) I'm like, shit, what have I done? Did I? And I was thinking, hang on. Well, in fairness, with your mother, you've always done something. That's just the rule. Like that's, you can't grow out of that. Honestly. (laughs) Okay, let's quickly just um, tell me what you're working on now. Okay, so as I said, I just finished the BBC Mm -hmm. Use Words First. That is a book. It's coming out on 26th of September, hopefully. I'm not wrong with that date. But (laughs) yeah, so BBC Words First is a talent development scheme. And we essentially gathered poets from around the country and from several different regions, but these regions just represent the entire country. So that is Edinburgh, Manchester, Newcastle, Bristol, and London. And 12 poets each performed at each region. And yeah, we kind of like singled them down to Mm -hmm. a final 12 that performed at Manchester home, like earlier, um, well, last July. And yeah, so next month in Hull, that's when is the Contain Strong Languages final for the talent development scheme. And six of the poets who, six of the 12 poets who are in the poetry book, which works out as yeah. an anthology, yeah. will be performing there in Hull for the, for the final. And personally, I'm working on a sci-fi novel and I said to myself, I'm not cutting my hair until it's done. And... <laughs> Now I regret it because... Crack yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, on that note, um, links to the things we've talked about are in our show notes. So if you're interested in further reading, check that out. Uh, we'll direct you to some places that can inspire you even more and including Jude's writing, of course. Thank you for being an amazing guest. Thank you so much for having me. I've really loved talking to you. Oh, good. Jude, thank you for being such a brilliant and compelling guest. I have loved every part of this conversation with you. 
And if you're listening and you enjoyed this conversation, don't forget that our book, How to Go to Work, is published by Penguin. The link's in our show notes. So if you're interested in further reading, check that out. We'll also direct you to some places that can inspire you even more, including towards Jude's writing. It's all in our show notes. Please subscribe and review this episode because it really helps new listeners to find us. And if you know someone who's making decisions about who or what they want to be as they enter the world of work, do recommend this project. We're all doing it because we really think we can help people feel more confident and more prepared by sharing the essential advice that no one ever tells you at the start of your career. Thank you for listening and thank you to Mark, our editor. Join me, Lucy Clayton, next time for another honest and unvarnished conversation about how to go to work. <laughs>